this week on the function room after the laughter you guys i know it's been a long day but i really don't like that we're breezing over the fact that yesterday trump said they were holding a huge press conference at the four seasons hotel and then they accidentally <laughs> come the hard realities but the bottom line is math doesn't care about your feelings math doesn't care. and to help dip our toe in some of the maths or math depending on your persuasion of the american election or any election we welcome to the function room professor of geography at maynooth adrian kavanagh he loves maths maps and elections i mean john king's wall in cnn looks brilliant but you could have the same walls in ireland yes let's build that wall forget about border walls, etc. So we want a map wall. Even if it's just keep old cranks like me happy for a few years and something moaning about the lack of data or the lack of good maps. He teaches the dark arts of electioneering to his students. Once you join the class, you're going to become part of US presidential election roll day assignments. But once you leave the university, you can go to America, meet the Republicans, and probably make a mint for the rest of your life uh, gerrymandering maps in North Carolina or Pennsylvania. And it's not just gerrymandering, it's the Eurovision. If you're Albania and if you want to make your mark on the world, you know your country is probably not going to win the World Cup. You're probably not going to win a lot of medals at the Olympics. But the one transnational event that does have a fairly level playing field is Eurovision. But deep down, he wants what any man wants. Obviously, election data. So, please send me any election data you have. Anyone, please. And Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Rudy Giuliani. What's your name and what's your job title? Adrian Kavner, lecturer, Department of Geography, Minute University. And... Adrian, why would I be talking to you on a maths podcast? What's matsy and numbery about geography? It's because of what I'm interested in, my research topic. And my research topic is elections. I'm also interested in Eurovision. And there's a few numbers involved in Eurovision as well <laughs> when it comes to voting patterns. We'll come to Eurovision hopefully later on. This episode is called The Math, as they say in America, or The Maths Doesn't Care About Your Feelings. The last three weeks has been about numbers and maths it must have been like catnip to you as a map and a maths enthusiast watching the drama unfold yeah it's a very interesting system like i won't go into the electoral electoral college because i think everyone in ireland probably knows all about that even the weird intricacies such as maine and nebraska now what's interesting is just the way the votes come in i think people in ireland who are aware of elections you know all the votes don't come in at the same time. So it is a counting process. So it's just looking at some of the states and the way the votes came in, the fact that so certain votes were counted first, and then other areas, votes from those areas start to come in later. You had the complication this time around, of course, of the big increase in male voting. And in some states, the male votes weren't counted until right near the end. So you'd say Pennsylvania, where Trump was ahead, I think, on election night at one stage by about 700,000 votes. But that was before the mail-in votes started to be counted. And once the mail-in votes started to be counted, you could just see the trend emerging that Biden was getting closer and closer until eventually, two days later, Biden overtook Trump. And 
latest count, he's 1% ahead with Trump in Pennsylvania, and he'll probably win Pennsylvania by, say, over 1% once all those mail-in votes are counted. I think we have sometimes on this side of the Atlantic taken the opportunity to sneer a bit at the American electoral system, a lot of it because we don't understand it, and also because it's fashionable to sneer in a westerly direction across the Atlantic. But it is a bit of a miracle, that system. There aren't many bigger election efforts Mm. in the world, are there? I mean, it's 150 million people voted, very little problems. Only India, maybe Indonesia, a few other countries have that many more people voting. And I don't think any of them would be paragons. It's not bad at all over there, isn't that right? Given how depressed people tend to get about the American democratic system, the fact that in the middle of a pandemic, they organized all those numbers to work. They've organized all those numbers. Like the latest count, they're pushing 155 million votes and they're still counting there. There's, they're still counting in the big states like California and New York and there's still a few votes to come in Pennsylvania. So the sheer size of the number of votes is impressive. The fact that they've pushed up the number of votes is also impressive. Uh, the latest count as of today, the 16th of November, there's 17.6 million more votes cast in this election than was the case in 2016. So in the middle of a pandemic, that's a very significant jump in terms of the number of votes. So there's a lot of good things to say about how to hold elections in America. It's a strange system in some ways because each state has its own different rules for how you cast votes, count votes. So it's quite complex. And sometimes maybe it's that complexity that leads people to think that uh, there's something wrong uh, with the American system. There's something rotten in the state of Denmark. But uh, no, I think they've had a very good election this time in terms of how they manage the whole process by and large. One of the things I noticed in watching results trickle through is I like their almost stubborn insistence on county by county. And, you know, they're talking about Maricopa. And to me, a county in America sounds like it has a sheriff and it has a dusty crossroads. But of course, the county was pretty much all the votes. Phoenix was in Maricopa. Mm. And it, it, it fooled us. It probably fooled Trump as well, too, when he's looking at results and not realizing the whole of all these counties have to come in, you know, all the votes themselves have to come in. I can sort of understand Trump's confusion because, first of all, on election night, he was ahead or it looked as if he was going to win. And this was the point before these mail votes came. He's also actually won 10 million more votes this time than he won the last time. And if you look at the maps column, generally, when you see a map of America, if you see a state map of America, it's a very red map when they show all the votes coming in because the Democrat vote tends to be highest in the cities. So the Democrat vote tends to be concentrated in a smaller number of areas, very highly populated areas, but a smaller number of areas. So if you look at the map, any electoral map of America, if you look at the state map, you'd be saying, oh, the Republicans must have won this in the landslide. If you look at the county map, it's even more striking. Uh, I'm glad you got on to maps because I know this is really part of your and good nerdy fascination with elections. And of course, land doesn't vote. So a map looks a lot redder than than the people in it might be. But America still has something that we don't really have a whole lot of here, which is a lot of gerrymandering. We might have heard the word in passing, but what is gerrymandering? Yeah, gerrymandering, we had this in Ireland up until the 1970s. 
And after the 1977 election, it was abolished. And since then, we've had independent electoral commissions. Uh, gerrymandering can take place where basically the politicians have the power to decide the electoral maps for the next election. In America, as in Ireland, as in most countries, they tend to redraw the maps after every census. So in America, the census takes place every 10 years. So this election was quite important because this election actually decided who would be redrawing the maps for the next election. We're talking here more so about, it's not the presidential election that was important in this case, it's who wins power in the different state governments because all the election maps, the maps for the congressional boundaries, the boundaries of the congressional districts that are used to elect people to the House of Congress, these are decided at a state level. And in a number of states, the politicians are the people who draw the maps and politicians use these maps to give themselves an advantage in the House of Congress elections. So you could see a few states, like maybe North Carolina, where the Democrats and the Republicans are neck and neck in terms of the number of popular votes. But when it comes to the House of Congress elections, you see the Republicans winning a lot of seats, much more seats than you'd expect, based on their number of votes. And that's because you can twist the election boundaries around in such a way that you're giving your side an advantage in terms of the ability to win seats. The big idea here is about effective votes, wasted votes, and surplus votes. The key to good vote efficiency is winning as many effective votes as possible. And you see that in the American presidential election. Uh, Trump and Biden weren't chasing after more surplus votes. Biden wasn't going to California to try and win California by as much as he could. There's no point. He was always going to win California. Trump wasn't going to the, 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 the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming trying to push up his votes there. It's pointless. So they go to the swing states, which is where, where all the effective votes are to be won. So the effective votes is important. What the effective votes is, technically, is the number of votes your opponent wins plus one. So if Trump wins two million votes, Biden's effective votes are two million and one. Uh, if he wins three million and one votes, that extra million, one million votes is surplus votes. In that scenario, Trump has lost the state. So any vote he wins in that state, all those two million votes are wasted votes. So it's about trying to win as many effective votes as possible. And when it comes to gerrymandering, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to ensure your party wins as many effective votes as possible. And that will give you a boost in terms of the number of seats. So the big idea is in, you have to presume the opposition will win some constituencies. So you try to ensure they win the constituencies, their constituencies, by huge margins. Whereas in your constituencies, the constituencies you set aside for your party to win, you want your party to win by comfortable margins. Or you don't want to risk things totally and actually end up losing these constituencies, but not by huge margins. So ideally, you'll have, say, in a, a state with 13 constituencies, the ideal would be You'd have three constituencies where the opposition would win those constituencies by maybe 200,000 votes. And then your party wins the other constituencies by, say, roughly 10 to 20,000 votes. So even though both parties are winning the same number of votes in that state, your party wins 10 congressional seats. The opposition wins three congressional seats. OK, so just to recap, the effective votes are the useful votes. The useful votes, yeah. The, it's the smallest number of votes you need to win to win that congressional district or that state. 
So the number of votes your opponent wins plus one. And then gerrymandering, I mean, it came originally from, this is Lieutenant Jerry, is that right? Governor Jerry uh, from Massachusetts. It's uh, refers Governor, to... Governor Jerry. Yeah, he drew, uh, he redrew the boundaries in Massachusetts. And one of the boundaries, some smart aleck in a newspaper said, that looks like a salamander. They put a, a tail on it and a pair of wings and said, oh, it's Governor Jerry's salamander. And hence the term gerrymandering. But effectively, once they started doing elections in America, they were gerrymandering from the get-go. Uh, so this gerrymandering, it's about as American as apple pie, to be honest. It's part of their their system. Now, there have been some court cases in recent years that's tried to overturn some of the gerrymanders. I think Pennsylvania, actually, the court case did win out and they... They ended up redrawing uh, the election constituencies ahead of the 2018 congressional elections, and that tilted the balance in Pennsylvania more towards the Democrats, and the Republicans lost quite a few congressional seats because of this. But sometimes it's easy to justify gerrymandering because you can say, look, we're trying to ensure that minority groups have representation, and because of the Voting Rights Act from the 1960s, that's one thing you're supposed to do when you're drawing up boundaries. So you could just say, oh, with this big state here that the Democrats won by 210,000 votes to 10,000. But we weren't trying to gerrymander there. We were trying to ensure that African-American voters or Latino voters got representation. So we're trying to be fair. Uh, the fact that accidentally we won two or three more seats in this state, it's just an accident. Uh, the Democrats, in a way, their geographies of support makes it very easy to gerrymander against the Democrats because their vote is very clustered in a small number of areas. So usually in a regular American state, the Democrat stronghold will be the city. The Republican stronghold will be the rest of the state. So all the more rural areas. And because of that, it's it's not a hard, even a bog-standard GIS effort wouldn't find it too hard to gerrymander a state in favour of the Republicans. And there's maths behind this, isn't there? They have used kind of geometry yeah, in order it, to see what... So the kind of the maths side of this is that as experts in... What would you call it? Spatial geometry? It's um, a geographical information system. So it's about it's about studying past election results and looking at the election map and saying, you know what, if we move this area out of that constituency and into the other constituency, we might end up winning an extra seat by doing this. It's looking at the past election results. It's also because of how uh, how partisan everything is in America and how polarized everything is in American politics, it's also looking at socio-demographics as well. So if you're a Republican, if you know, say, a certain number of counties are 80% African-American, you'll probably guess they're going to vote Democrats. So you can twist the maps, map boundaries around to ensure that these areas get squashed together, they get packed together into one or two constituencies, and then you split the remaining Democrat vote across the rest of the state, where your party will probably win most of the seats. This is what they call packing and cracking. And then on the other side, you can use maths to see whether something has been gerrymandered. What they do, what a lot of them do is to kind of they kind of 
simulate the, the, the map drawing program a few times. So the, to try and work out what's the probability of the present state boundaries, what's, what's the probability of those being drawn up if all things were equal, if there was no gerrymandering? If you find out it's a very, very low probability that these maps could have emerged uh, without any gerrymandering efforts, then you've got something to prove gerrymandering, especially if it comes to a court case. So it's about, uh, there's a lot of statistics and probability involved there. I'd love to delve into this in further detail, but it's actually a subject worthy of an episode in itself. The US Supreme Court has said that gerrymandering is wrong, but mostly no one knows how to measure wrong or what wrong is. So you'd need to prove that whoever was drawing the map was doing it on purpose, that they were being snaky. So very few court cases have actually been won. Uh, Adrian was mentioning packing and cracking. Packing means putting all your opponent's voters in one area, so their vote only elects one person. And then cracking means spreading them out across a few areas, so there isn't enough of them to defeat anyone. Mathematicians are trying to train themselves to spot this kind of stuff by measuring all sorts of mad geometry, measuring the compactness of a particular map. It's an interesting area of topology. They look at the ratio of perimeter to area, all sorts of complicated things so that they can one day go into a court case and say, this map is gerrymandered, someone is acting the bollocks. So if you Google a woman called Moon Dukin, so she's an expert in this area, and one day I'd love to get her on the show. It's one of the things I love about maths, like how do you find some order in what looks like an impossibly chaotic problem, or how do you catch someone out who is trying to be snaky and they can just shrug their shoulders and say, what, this just happened normally? So anyway, back to the show. Am I right in saying that you teach your students about gerrymandering and you get them to role play gerrymandering and American elections in as part of their coursework, do you? Yeah, I teach a, a module in Minute uh, called Electoral Geography, GY347 uh, module code fans. Uh, so in Electoral Geography, uh, it's a final year module. Uh, one of the last modules the students do, which will probably twist and uh, mess with their minds for the rest of their lives, unfortunately, but that's the way it goes. Uh, in my module, uh, once you join the module, you are going to become part of what I call the US ele- presidential election role play task. So everyone gets to play a role. Uh, one third of the Sorry, task- can that sentence, uh, I believe it was probably a vital word at the end of that. Um, so can you take it up as once you join the class? Uh, once you join the class, uh, you're going to become part of the US presidential election role play task or role play assignment. So everyone in the class gets assigned a role. Uh, one third of the class will be primary election candidates and the other two thirds are going to be members of that candidate's team. So we go all through the different processes, different parts of an American election system. So we start with the, the year before the election, all these kind of uh, big events that go like the Iowa State Fair where I tell all the class that they've got to be seen eating corn dogs. They've got to be seen eating meat at these fairs. You've got to show how relatable you are to the to the locals in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. I stress the importance. I get them to learn the importance of the early states. So they've got to be they've got to be posting on the forums, posting about okay, they're visiting Iowa, but they're not just visiting Iowa. They want to show how relatable they are. They're doing what local people like. They're going to the local 
cafes or they're enjoying hot dogs, they're eating the foods the local peoples do, they're reading the local newspapers. It's about basically stressing the point that relatability is very important in these elections. But in terms of the primaries, the early states are really important. You need to be seen on the ground in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in Nevada and South Carolina to get this MOMO behind you, MOMO, money and momentum, to build up momentum to, if you, to be seen to be do well in Iowa. If you're seen to do well in Iowa and, or New Hampshire or South Carolina or Nevada, you build up momentum behind yourself and suddenly all the campaign dona- donations start trickling in and suddenly people start to look on you as a front runner to win your party's uh, nomination to run in the presidential election. So I get them to go through the primary election process where half the class are Democrats, the other half are Republicans, and they're backstabbing each other, probably left, right, and center. I, I, I encourage that, of course, valuable life skills. And then once they pick their candidates, people who 10 minutes before were probably backstabbing each other, they're suddenly now best friends all over and now they're joining together to fight the last half of the class, which is the head-to-head between the Democrat members of the class and the Republicans. And this is where they start to learn the importance of swing states, where they start to learn how important it is to spend all your time campaigning in Georgia or Pennsylvania, and why it's important not to waste any time campaigning in California or New York. And then at the end, we have a big hoo-ha where we find out who wins the election. What's funny about this is usually students, even left-leaning students, once they become a Republican, they start in the process to behave more and more like Republicans. So the Republican students, they almost get the sense that they taste red meat and they want more of it. And they start, they they often play dirtier than the Democrat students do. And usually they win the election as well. <laughs> so you've you've created this little Stanford prison experiment inside in Maynooth Geography Department where you are encouraging the worst <laughs> instincts Valuable of these life beautiful, beautiful innocent lessons. students. <laughs> As I say to my students, uh, in this in geography, you get to learn about electoral geography. You can also do GIS. So once you leave the university, you can go to America, ring the Republicans, and probably make a mint for the rest of your life, uh, gerrymandering maps in North Carolina or Pennsylvania. And you get them to do little gerrymandering exercises yeah, themselves. Yeah. Uh, I get them to do gerrymandering exercises themselves. So uh, one of the assignments I got them to do last year was to try and, you know, with gerrymandering, just to recap, it's only relevant in America to congressional elections. You can't really gerrymander the presidential election because it's the, it's the state boundaries that's used there. There's a slight exception of Maine and Nebraska. I'd love to talk about that for 20 minutes. I won't, but you can't <laughs> gerrymander the states. But I said to the students, here's an assignment. If you could gerrymander the state boundaries, what would you do? So I thought, okay, they'll struggle with this. Uh, they'd already tasted red meat, to be honest, by doing the presidential election. So it's students who are gerrymandering on, the, on behalf of the Republicans. So they were coming up with ideas like, okay, here's California, 55 electoral college votes. What if I create a new state called East California, where East California is very Republican, just to note, or a state called West New York, which is also very Republican, it's more rural. And all of a sudden, some of those 55 electoral college votes in California are going to Republicans. And then in the northeast of America, 
why don't you just join together all the small states, the Maines and the Vermonts and the Rhode Island, so you get a super New England state where the Democrats will win it comfortably enough, but they won't win as many electoral college votes as they would have won if these were all standalone three electoral college votes or four electoral college vote states. And on the flip side, then, you can do the same against the Republicans. You could unite the, 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 the Dakotas, join the Dakotas together with Montana and Idaho and Wyoming, create a super state in the American Prairie region, and all of a sudden the Democrats are gaining more electoral college votes than the Republicans in those areas. And you could even go to Florida and say, look, let's just create a new state in Florida around Miami where we'll be certain that we'll win these, this this area at least, and we'll get at least 10 electoral college votes maybe from Florida. So they took to it like they ducks to it. water. Uh, I was a little bit scared, to be honest, but it's also, you know, it's kind of like uh, the mother birds, mother eagle seeing her young killed for the first time. Is that feeling I had in my heart, you know, a little bit scared, but proud, very proud as well. So proud. As you, saw the, you saw the blood dripping I just saw the, from it, their jaws. A little, bit, a little bit of fear at what more. you... Yes. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of fear at what you'd unleashed upon the world. Uh, Frank's monster, yes. Going back to the process of counting votes and the kind of local knowledge, we laughed about the idea that the infamous tally man from Ireland... Uh, which is a gender-neutral term, men and women can be tally men, would be a crack team that would land in Nevada to help them speed up the vote. Okay, jumping in again here for any listeners not familiar with some of the mystical lore of Irish general elections. At an election count here, while the counters are counting, standing behind them are a mysterious group called the tally men. They look over the shoulder of the counters and note the first preference of each vote as it is placed on a particular pile, because we vote for multiple candidates here in Ireland in order of preference. And so because they see each box being opened and then they see where the votes are going, they know a hell of a lot about how each candidate does in every local district. Right down, it could be to the housing estate, could be to the street. Uh, also, Adrian mentions Leash Offaly, which is a constituency made of two counties here in Ireland, often with very different people uh, going for election in each. Back to Adrian. How important is local knowledge down to the very housing estate when it comes to getting knowing who's voting for who in Ireland? And does, yeah. is it as local? Is it as local in America as well? It is in America, but on a, obviously on a much wider scale uh, because you're looking at counties. And some of the counties in America, again, to use the Trump terminology, are in population terms, they're huge. Uh, in Ireland, it's, local knowledge is important because it helps you read how an election count is going. So if you know 60% of the votes have been counted in Leash Offaly, uh, but you know all the votes have been counted in Offaly and very few have been counted in Leash. You know things are going to change over the remainder of the counting. You, you will know that there's a lot more votes to come from Leash and you will know that the Leash-based candidates will be expected to start catching up on the Offaly-based candidates as the counting goes on. Because in America, voting is quite local, but a lot of times the localised dimension has a lot to do with social demographics. So you know the cities are going to be strongly Democrat, you know rural areas are going to be strongly Republican. 
In Ireland, we have the knock-on impact of the friends and neighbours effect, which actually worked in, you could argue, worked in Trump's favour this time around, because one of the few states where he gained, in terms of the percentage share of the vote this time around, was Florida. And apparently, Florida is now his home state. So you could argue a friends and neighbours voting effect helped Trump, at least in Florida in 2020. It works the same in Ireland. You will know that unless a local candidate does something absolutely awful to really annoy local people, you will always expect a local candidate to win a big number of votes in their home area. The actual percentages involved can shock people. I know political scientists sometimes don't believe just how big a share of the vote a local candidate can win in their home area. I think in the last local elections in Leash and Doro, the local Doro candidate, Ollie Clooney, I think he won about 80% of the votes in Doro. So in local elections especially, but also general elections, a local candidate will win a very large share of the votes in their home area. So it's key for them. What's important for them is to make sure as many local people get out to vote. But if you have a local candidate, they're going to get a big share of the vote, but you'll probably find the turnout in that area is going to be high as well because most people are in Ireland are quite keen that a local candidate gets elected because they believe a local candidate is more likely to get things done on the ground in their area than, say, some guy in the other county or some guy at the other side of the constituency or some, some guy there being gender neutral, I should add. It's interesting about Florida. I never thought of that, that Trump, uh, yeah, yeah, because- it was just one giant constituency and he was the local man there. He was resident there. He kept on spending time at his resorts. And yes, there was obviously there was the Cuban-American yeah. influence, but but he was their local, like a New York hates him. So somebody must love yeah. him somewhere. Yeah. Because in 2016, New York was his home state. So he obviously he's like there's. There's some brains in the Republican campaigning team. So they probably said, look, why are you calling us? Why are you saying your New York is your home state? You're not going to win New York. Just claim Florida as your home state. And that like that might have just edged another two percent his way, but that two percent could have been the difference between him winning or losing Florida. And if things had broke down differently in Nevada or Arizona or Pennsylvania, that ability to claim Florida as his as his home state. Could have been the difference between him winning or losing that election. That result in Florida, the victory there and his increase in votes must have contributed to one thing that came out of this election, because although Biden is looks like winning by more than six million votes or close to six million votes, it still only might be four percent of turnout. But the national polls had him as high as 10 percent. So that's outside the margin of error. And We'll come to the whys of that, but just explain in elections, what's margin of error and how do they calculate it? Right. The margin of error relates to uh, to opinion polls. So what the margin of error basically is trying to estimate is to what extent your opinion poll or your survey will reflect the views of the entire population. Now, you know, in a country like America, you you can survey anyone, but you can't survey everyone. So all surveys or all opinion polls, you're trying to take a sample of the general population. So the margin of error is a way of measuring just how effective or how successful your poll is going to be in trying to match the views of the entire population. The margin of error is strongly related to uh, the number of people who answer a survey are the number of people who respond to an opinion poll. So the more people 
that answer your survey or your poll, the more successful you're going to be in terms of your poll. The more likely it is that your poll will reflect the views of the entire population. So really what you're hoping for is a sample of the population that you take for your poll or survey. Your hope that that will reflect the entire population, in which case you're going to have a successful survey. The margin of error then is kind of a measure of just how successful your poll is likely to be or your survey. Take a country like Ireland. At the moment, it's estimated there's probably about 4.9 million people living in Ireland. If you carry out a survey with just two people, uh, the margin of error is roughly about 70%, which means your poll is basically useless. Okay, let's take a more realistic scenario. So say 1,000 people respond to an opinion poll. Now, in this case, the margin of error is down to 3%. Now, most opinion polls in Ireland, you have roughly about 1,000 respondents. So most opinion polls, the margin of error is roughly 3%. Now, that means there's even in a good opinion poll, it's not going to exactly match what the real result is going to be, especially even the poll that's taken on the night of the election, an exit poll. So you have a margin of error of 3%. So that means if the exit poll or the opinion poll estimates Fianna Fáil support at 22%, the real level of support that Fianna Fáil could win could be as low as 19%, so 3% below 22% or 25%, 3% above. So it's estimating roughly the range of support that the different parties will fall within. So that's what the margin of error is in very rough layman, layperson's terms. And presumably, do they pick 1,000 as the sample because it's sort of a sweet spot that doubling the number of people to 2,000 doesn't give you like an immediate yeah. if you, if halving you of the margin yeah, of error. No, no. If you double it to 2,000, the margin of error is roughly 2%. So it's probably... That reason comes, but it's probably economics as well, because it costs a lot of money to do a big survey like this. So if you're thinking, okay, we can do a thousand and get a thousand respondents and the margin of error is three percent, you're not going to be very enticed to do an extra thousand just to pull the margin of error down by another one percent. And the same if it goes to three thousand, the margin of error is probably roughly the same as well. Okay, me again. Sorry, Uh, I'd meant to ask Adrian more about margin of error, but I forgot. So I rang him afterwards and we chatted a bit more about why the polls got it wrong. So the margin of victory for Biden will be about 4%, um, which is 1% or 2% outside the margin of error for most of the national polls. And it wasn't as bad as 2016, but they still got it wrong enough. And they got it even more wrong in the Senate and congressional elections. Now, one reason you might have heard of is the the, the shy Trump voter, but particularly the white college-educated Trump voter who wouldn't necessarily be shouting about his main man in the suburb or on campuses. And then there was another theory that Adrian mentioned that when pollsters rang houses, the people who were more likely to be at home were Democrats because they were their candidate was telling them, stay inside, social distance, watch out for the pandemic, whereas Trump was telling his voters, pandemic, schmandemic, and they might have been out when the pollsters rang. It's just a theory, but for future elections, uh, Adrian says, keep a closer eye on local polls because they were more accurate. They were more closer to the eventual answer, especially 
the Des Moines Register in Iowa, which was bang on. They said Trump would win Iowa by 8% and he won it by 8.2. Okay, I promise I won't interrupt again, I think. Uh, Back to the show. The other area where maths and maps come together in your life is the Eurovision. What have you been doing maths-wise and map-wise with the Eurovision over the course of your misspent youth and grown life? Uh, My misspent youth's a long way, long time back now, unfortunately, Colm. Yeah, no, like Eurovision is effectively, it's it's a big election with Brilliant songs added in. Brilliant songs added in. Uh, so I, I can look at Eurovision in the same way as I look at the American elections or the Irish elections. You're looking at where votes come from. But you're also looking at the impact of the voting system. And Eurovision, they've used different voting systems over the past. So I remember 2016, we had a very close, I was going about to say election, but it was election, very close contest in 2016. I missed uh, I missed the year. Can you take that again? A very close contest. Um, yeah. After system, just because, again, the, yeah. the first half of the sentence was chewed. Yeah. So Eurovision, Eurovision in 2016 was a very close contest. Uh, it was won by Ukraine, which actually Ukraine finished second in the popular vote. Russia won the popular vote. So that was a system that they would have used in Eurovision between 1999 and 2010, where everything was based on the popular vote or televote. So if that system had been used in 2016, Russia would, would, would have won Eurovision. Australia won the jury vote, which was basically the system to decide at Eurovision up until uh, 1998, 1999. So if they'd used the old system, Australia would have won Eurovision. But because you used a combination of both those systems, Ukraine ended up winning. But in previous years, they'd used different weightings of jury votes and televotes. So there's a few scenarios where a different weighting of televotes and jury votes would have allowed Australia to have won or a different weighting would have allowed Russia to have won. So Eurovision is fascinating in terms of looking at how voting systems even play out in the world's top singing contest. Eurovision is also interesting to see the politics involved with voting. Most people, when they think of political voting with Eurovision, they think about the public vote and they say, oh, everyone in the east of Europe votes for Russia because it's political, blah, 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 blah. Uh, every, well, it is an attestant. Uh, usually when it comes to the public vote, people are just looking voting for what they like. Uh, we tend, in Ireland, we tend to vote for the countries that are closest for us as well. So the country that gives the most points to the United Kingdom on average over the last 20 years has been Ireland because we sort of like the same music and we sort of know, we've, sort, we've heard... A lot of times we've heard of the acts that the United Kingdom sends. The only reason why the United Kingdom doesn't tend to win the televote in Ireland is because of the Lithuanian and Polish and Latvian diaspora votes, which often mean Poland, Lithuania and Latvia tend to do quite well in the Irish televote. So the public vote is a lot to do with this type of music you like. And usually you tend to like the same type of music as countries around you. Uh, Ireland's kind of friends in Eurovision it's not exactly geographical, so France isn't particularly interested in Irish music. We get very few points from France, but the countries that are more likely to like the Irish music are the northwestern European countries, and particularly the Scandinavian countries. Where you do tend to get political voting in Eurovision now comes in the jury vote. So the juries, they're meant to be professional juries that are basing their state decisions based solely on music. 
But a lot of the juries will take political, uh, they'll take politics into account when they're doing their rankings. And because voting, the voting process in Eurovision has got a lot more transparent in recent years, you can actually see each jury member's rank, how they rank each song in the final. So if there's 25 or 26 songs in the Eurovision final, you'll see how each jury member ranks each song from first all the way down to 26. So in, if you look at the example of Russia, when it comes to the popular vote or the televote, Russia generally does well in terms of all the countries that border on it, all the former Soviet states. Uh, in part, it might be because people still hark back to the old Soviet past. In a lot of cases, it's because people like the same music as the peep that Russia sends. So people like the acts that Russia sends. In most cases, it's because people in Belarus and Ukraine and Moldova actually recognize the acts that Russia sends, whereas they've never probably heard of the uh, Donna and Joseph McCall, and they would never have heard of Mickey Joe Hart, but they recognize Sergei Lazarev, they recognize Polina Gagarova. But you also have a big Russian diaspora living in most of the countries in the former Soviet states. Where you do see the interest in politics in terms of how countries vote for Russia is in the jury votes for these countries. So countries, former Soviet states that like Russia, that want to stay on Russia's good side, will usually send a lot of votes Russia's way in the jury votes. Uh, Azerbaijan's an interesting one. In 2013, uh, it became... You start Azerbaijan again, sorry. Azerbaijan's an interesting one. In 2013, they didn't give the full votes in 2013, but it became very obvious that Azerbaijan's jury had ranked Russia's act very low. So uh, for some, Vladimir Putin sort of heard that, okay, we finished second in the public vote in Azerbaijan, but we got no points from Azerbaijan. So he started talking about voter fraud at Eurovision. And you could probably just see the jury members in Azerbaijan getting very, very scared. Since 2014, Russia has got 12 points from the Azerbaijan jury every year since then. So there's a bit of... uh, you, could, you tend to find in the former Soviet states, you get the political voting in the jury. So countries like Armenia, like Moldova, like Belarus will usually send a lot of points Russia's way in the jury because they like Russia and they want to say, hi, Russia, we like you. Whereas countries that don't particularly like Russia politically, like Georgia or Ukraine or Lithuania, will usually use the jury vote to send a two-finger salute to Russia. And usually the Russian act will be ranked in 22nd or 23rd place, even if that act is probably in the running to win the contest. You have a student doing a project on Eurovision. I mean, it just seems like quite a brilliant course uh, for just um, practicing all sorts of global maneuvering. But you had a student who was working on a, a Eurovision simulation or data, big data mining. Yeah, well, I- uh, I've got old now, so uh, my PhD student, Keelan Darcy, now takes that particular group or that particular research project group. Uh, we've had research project groups where we get students to look at the geography of voting or the Eurovision geography of different countries. So uh, we get allow them to pick their country at the start of the semester, and then they spend the rest of the semester carrying out a research project looking at that country's geography of voting. So we've had some really interesting projects in recent years, uh, looking at the Eurovision Jorvi of Albania, the Eurovision Jorvi of Lithuania, and the Eurovision Jorvi of Sweden, just to mention a few standout projects. 
Oh, I'm what sorry. have you found about? And what have you found about Albania? What's Albania? What, what would surprise people? Fascinating because you see the knock-on effect of diaspora voting in relation to Albania, which you also see kind of you see how important the local vote is for Albania. And there's some interesting uh, politics involved in terms of Albania's neighbours. Albania usually gain a fairly decent number of votes from countries like North Macedonia and Greece, but you don't get that same number of votes crossing between Serbia and Albania because there's obviously some political, uh, a lot of uh, bad political feeling between those two countries. Even today, still almost well over 20 years after the Kosovo War. But there's also, what's also interesting is to look at why Eurovision is so important to these countries. Uh, if you look at Albania, Albania takes Eurovision very seriously. Albania does Eurovision on a grand scale. Uh, Albania has uh, a contest that they run every year, just after Christmas, called the Festivali Kengis. And they use this to select their Eurovision Act. Actually, this contest has been going, I think, since probably in the 1950s, but since 2004, they've used this contest to select Albania's Eurovision Act. And you're talking about a contest that probably everyone in Albania is watching, that you have 20 or 25 different acts taking part. And basically, it's a big TV event in Albania immediately after Christmas, when probably the only thing you can do in Albania is watch television. So just to see how serious Albania, Albania takes this and how much effort they put in to pe- to choosing a good Eurovision entry. Because for small Eurovision countries, like Ireland, I would suggest, in the 1970s and 1980s, if you're Albania and if you want to make your mark in the world, you know your country is probably not going to win the World Cup. You're probably not going to win a lot of medals at the Olympics. But the one transnational event that does have a fairly level playing field is Eurovision. A small country every so often can break through and do very well at Eurovision. And all of a sudden, you have a period of time where everyone's talking about your country and talking about your country in a positive manner. So for countries like Albania, Moldova, uh, doing well at Eurovision can be a big thing for them. It can be as big a thing for them as winning Eurovision was for us in the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s. So Albania is almost... You could draw a link between that and a swing state in America. Like for a period of time, it's pivotal. Uh, It allows it to kind of have a greater influence than its size might reflect. Yeah, that's a good point, Colm. Yeah, because that's the funny thing about Eurovision. It's a level playing field. A country like San Marino, which I think has a a very small population, probably a couple of thousand people and a dog called Giovanni, uh, a country as small as San Marino has the same voting power as Russia, which has, I think, over 200 million people in it. So everything is on a level playing field. Albania has as much say in terms of deciding who wins Eurovision as Russia does and as Germany does and as the United Kingdom does. So that's the beauty of Eurovision. So the United the United States of Eurovision is something we should be paying closer attention to, and maybe Ireland is has been um, thumbing its nose up at it since we got all the tech giants in, thinking that we were the center of the world. But actually, there's great clout to be bought in Eurovision if we actually concentrated on it and send somebody there. Maybe we should be sending uh, some of our own 
diaspora back to the Eurovision, yeah. sending yeah. Polish music or Albanian music or uh, Ukrainian representatives from here to, to uh, strengthen the ties? Yeah, I always think that good. It's probably hard to do this year because of the, or next year because of the pandemic, but a good election campaign is what you need every year when you're doing Eurovision. You want to do it seriously. And, and a number of the countries, like Armenia, do good Eurovision election campaigns. It's not a case of just selecting your act and faffing around until Eurovision comes. Countries like Azerbaijan and Armenia, you pick your act and you expect your act to do a tour of Europe. In the wow. case of Armenia, you want your act to do a tour of Western Europe because you know that's where the Armenian votes are. You know that's where the Armenian diaspora lives. So you want your act to go to Belgium, to France and the Netherlands to try and excite people about your act and to make sure you get those du support from the French televote and the Belgian televote and the Dutch televote when your vision comes along in the middle of May. So right. a good electoral campaigner, someone like Johnny Fallon, or I, I do it in a heartbeat, I'll be honest, a good election <laughs> campaigner, maybe one of those famous tally men from Nishofi, hire one of those, get them working on your campaign, and the next thing you know, your vision will be live from Amur Park in Port Leach or Parky Verde in May 2021. And who doesn't want to see that? I can't think of anybody who wouldn't want to see that. Before I let you go, Adrian, is there anything you're looking forward to with interest in terms of the marriage between maps and maths and elections that is going to tell us a lot more, help us predict things? When you look into the future, what do you see it's, in your yeah, area? I think the technology is going to get better, Column. Uh, what I would like to see in Ireland is our technological aspects here in relation to elections getting as strong as America. If you look in America, when the votes come in, they're reporting those votes to a very small scale. So everything's done on a county level. And the ability to be able to do what John King did for, for CNN in the last, over the last few weeks, I'd love to be able to do that in Ireland. We don't have that capacity in Ireland because the data we the data, the tally data, you've referred to tally men, but usually the tally data isn't released to the general public. So you don't have the data, but you also don't have the maps to be able to do that at the moment because the polling districts, the areas that each polling box relates to, uh, there's usually they're usually made up of bits of electoral divisions or parts of counties. So we need better maps in Ireland. We need better access to data. If we can do that in Ireland, then we could have as much excitement and as much fun around election times as they had in America over the last few weeks. So get John King back to visit his relatives in Ireland to time with an election, give him a wall, and we can have that fun John on King, our um, own broadcast. I want that wall. I, to be honest, <laughs> this is the thing about local knowledge. I think you, if John King was shown the Irish wall, he wouldn't have a clue. You would need someone with, John King has a lot of good knowledge but it's related to America. You need someone with the local knowledge. So you need a few electoral Jorvi nerds hanging around the wall and getting excited about the votes coming in from Ballyvourney and saying, oh, wow, look, oh, Fine Gael's up by 5% here now. This is interesting because blah, blah, blah. And if we see this trend happening in the rest of the constituency, then we could see Fine Gael gaining a, vote, a seat here. And what if we see this across the rest of Ireland, if we project this? So 
And you can also bring in then the friends and neighbours effect. You say, well, oh, we're looking here at Mid-East, Helen McEntee not doing well in the first boxes, but the North, the boxes in the North of the constituency are about to come in and we're going to see her vote increase over the next set of boxes. So there's so much fun. I can hear the excitement in your voice. I think hopefully, what are we saying, 2025 could be the year of Adrian's wall, hopefully? I would like to think so, but... uh, it's all about, as I said before, it's about getting getting data. Like the, we talk about the tiny men column. A lot of times in some constituencies, you can't get that data. Uh, we had our general election back in January. I think I managed to get tally data from maybe about 15, 16 constituencies. But after that, you'd nearly have to sell your firstborn to get tally data from some constituencies. I don't have any children, so I'm rightly banjaxed. It's uh, jealously guarded, that information, is it? Oh, yes, definitely. Because information is power. If you have a good tally data set for your constituency and the other parties doesn't have it, you're at an advantage when it comes to the next general election because you know where your party's strong, but you know the parts of the constituency where your party isn't as strong. So you can make a decision, okay, we'll try and increase our vote in these areas, maybe by picking a third candidate, a sweeper candidate, who might increase our party vote by a couple of thousand in those areas. Or you might just say, oh, we know now which parts of the constituency to concentrate on, so we'll put all our get-out-the-vote efforts into the north and the south of the county of the constituency, and we'll leave the rest, the other side, we'll put less emphasis on the other side. We're not going to do well there, so we'll put all our eggs into our stronger areas. So knowledge is power, data is power. I love data. I definitely love election data. So please send me any election data you have. Anyone, please. And plenty of maps as well. And plenty of maps. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Please, can someone do a very good polling district map of every constituency in Ireland? The government's promising to bring in an electoral commission. So hopefully to get a fairly nerdish person to head up the commission who loves data as much as I do, Maybe they might actually start working on polling district maps because, like, if I mean, John King's wall in CNN looks brilliant, but you could have the same walls in Ireland. Like, uh, if you have Cork Southwest or Leash Offley and you just see it broken up into the polling districts, that would be brilliant. It'd be fascinating. Even people who don't particularly like numbers or maps, I think, they'd get into it as much as they got into the American presidential election coverage. We can build that wall here, is what you're saying. Yes, let's build that wall. Forget about border walls, etc. Cetera, et cetera. We want a map wall. Let's do that. Even if it's just keep old cranks like me happy for a few years and stop moaning about the lack of data or the lack of good maps. So that's all from the function room this week. My thanks to Adrian Kavanagh. Uh, also, a quick note, Adrian mentions banjaxed, which is a wonderful Hiberno English word, which means ruined, incapacitated, or broken, but you know, mainly banjaxed. That's it from me. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.